watchers in the fourth dimension. Life preys on other forms of life, as you know, Doctor. Nothing. Dodo would be as stupid as that. I'm afraid I'm... I'm not quite myself. Happened to me. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I hate conducted tours. This time around, we're talking about a story that garners very little attention from fandom. It's oh wow, in my notes I've got the massacre. It's actually <laughs> the savages, everyone. The story of pitch to screen for this one is a bit of an unusual one. Ian Stewart Black was already an established writer. He'd worked on shows such as The Invisible Man, Danger Man, and The Saint. However, his children refused to believe that he was a proper writer because he hadn't actually worked on Doctor Who. While walking through the corridors of the BBC, he stopped in at the Doctor Who production office and expressed the desire to write for the show so he could please his kids. With John Wiles and Donald Tosh still there, they encouraged him to pitch a storyline. But by the time he came back, Wiles and Tosh were gone. Fortunately, the new producer Innes Lloyd and the new script editor Jerry Davies liked his pitch and commissioned a script, making this the first televised story that was actually commissioned in the Lloyd Davis era. Directing the story, we have the return of Christopher Barry. He had, of course, previously directed both The Rescue and The Romans, and he will continue to work on the show into the late 1970s. Musically, we have another return. It's Raymond Jones, who had previously worked with Christopher Barry on The Romans, and this was actually his last contribution to the show. As designer, we have Stuart Walker, and this was his only ever work on Doctor Who. Outside of this, he had worked on The Further Adventures of the Musketeers, Doomwatch, Paul Temple, and Zed Cars, just like everyone else on British television at this time. With that, it's time to move on to our short summary, which this time around is in the hands of yours truly. With a new production team in place, the show seems to finally remember that it's not actually meant to be supporting oppression, and gives us a parable that links energy vampirism and technology to colonial powers stealing the natural resources of their colonies. To try and be clever, they put the lead oppressor in blackface while the eponymous savages are all white, Hartnell gets to spend some time rolling around groaning instead of getting his usual vacation, while Stephen actually gets to be the hero, saving the day and going off to fulfil dreams of a white saviour narrative at the end. What? I never said they got this one 100% right. That moves us into our discussion of the story, starting with the first episode, episode one. Yeah, we're really missing those episode titles already. Uh, episode one absolutely. is distinctly less metal. It does make them easier <laughs> to remember. That's Does true. it? Because <laughs> they're all going to be the same for a long time from here on out. At some point, it transitions from episode to part. That's too confusing. Steady on. This, once again, they recently rediscovered the joy of continuing the story on from the previous episode. This does that again. We have landed on a incredibly advanced planet with a savage wandering around. I have a question for you guys. Did anyone get the impression they were kind of foreshadowing where this was going to go from the beginning in terms of Stephen leaving and this being a kind of Stephen maturity coming of age, even though he's a grown ass man? <laughs> kind of story no i don't think so i, I didn't uh, pick up on no. that no. no no not at all i think it's uh straightforward to start i don't think there was anything regarding steven uh that you know foreshadowed it but i just picked up on dodo throwing some shade at him where i can't remember the exact context but he says he's you know the doctor didn't tell him to do something and dodo responds with you don't have to do everything he tells you you're a grown man or are you 
Yeah, I guess you're right. That is a good call right there. Um, and also the doctor later on refers to them as like juvenile. That's true. I guess I could see maybe like kind of growing up a bit, but I don't think it was as much a foreshadowing of leaving the TARDIS. Yeah, you can you can see it in retrospect would be how I would put yeah. it. Yeah, admittedly I only picked up on it when I finished watching the story and looked back over my notes. What did everyone think about the music? I thought the music was excellent, this the serial. Yeah. I love that type of like stressful violin kind of thing. Just uh, it was really enjoyable. I thought it worked very well throughout the entire serial. Absolutely. I agree. For me, the music was definitely one of the high points of this story. And it's, it's a shame we don't get more of Raymond Jones because it, it was definitely something different to what we've been used to. Because they had gotten into the habit of reusing the Daleks music how many times? So <laughs> it's just really nice to have something yeah, pretty unique. Yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe, I mean, not to take away from the quality, but maybe to me it was just like, whoa, this is new music. I've never heard this before. I can't remember the last time this happened on the show. And did anyone ever catch the um, the device the doctor uh, had on him when he was, yeah. <laughs> yes. The yes. reacting vibrator. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a big, I think that's a big seller. I was going out of my way not to comment on that. <laughs> Try to class this show up a bit. I was gonna let one of the guys throw that one out there. So, thank but literally, you, Riley. That, that is like watching this episode outside of the music. That's like the first thing I wrote down. <laughs> that's how, that's yeah. how juvenile I am, just like Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, in in your summary, you made mention of Jono being in blackface. I, I don't know. I mean, yes, he was given a darker complexion. I mean, it's not traditional blackface and like 1920s Al Jolson style, but... We're not quite full-on minstrel, but... Yeah. See, to me, he barely even looked like he had a tan. He just looked kind of shiny. Yeah, he did look shiny, and, and that's the other thing. Yeah. Like, we have no idea... Well, I don't know. Does anyone, I guess, maybe in a Doctor Who has, you know, history book, maybe there's the color photos of the set and we can get an idea. Who knows? He may have been like in green, glittery face makeup for all we know. No, he was definitely darkened. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> there goes my theory. <laughs> yeah. This episode also had my favorite tropes of, okay, everyone's going to split up, and, oh, hey, a secondary character doesn't trust the TARDIS crew. Yes. So yeah, but that's... Do you mean Tor? <laughs> the savage later on, or someone that's within the society? Within the society. Speaking of the society, it was fairly weird how... A, they've been able to watch them travel through time and space and know about them. But then B, how quickly they appoint the Doctor as one of the Elders. I, I was just sitting there going, well, this is extremely fast-paced. What the hell? Well, I guess if they knew he was coming and knew the kind of stuff he had done, they were they were going to do that anyway. True. Although they did turn on him with remarkable speed. <laughs> Maybe they were very cunning and they thought, like, you know, the Doctor... Uh, at least the first Doctor has always been a sucker for being praised. Maybe they thought like, you know, we'll go in here, we'll consider him an elder and, you know, praise him and compliment him. And maybe that will distract him because we know that if he knew what we were really doing here, he would probably not be happy about it. I think the elders must have, you know, while watching the Doctor, watched the arc and thought, well, we know how this show works. The Doctor will surely be, A, very ineffective at fighting for the underdogs or B, just not care. And how <laughs> wrong were they? They hadn't realized we'd had a change in production team. It's, this whole serial seemed like the arc done better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, in so many different ways. 
the thing that really cracked me up was I I really felt like the uh, the right with the writing for the scene or the exposition scene of the Ajano uh, saying you know talking to the doctor and he just keeps building up our conflict and he keeps hitting on like we've done this we've made the fast man faster and this better and blah blah with one simple discovery and they keep hitting that line over and over again one simple discovery is just like hey audience pay attention pay attention because this one thing this is going to be the thing that every this is going to be all about He's, he sold it like a like a clickbait headline, didn't he? I know. Doc, doctors hate them with one simple discovery. <laughs> one simple trick. And what I liked about it, too, is it was like a society built around science. I like that kind of choice where the people in charge were also a little bit more knowledgeable from that aspect. Because it really seemed like what happens when a, a scientist goes crazy and doesn't have any limitations because normally you'd have someone who said, this is probably not a good idea, but they just let him run rampant. Yeah. I mean, talking of that, I thought the light gun, talking of technology, was such a cool concept. Yes. Great yeah. concept. It did look like a tail light to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Speaking of that, what I thought was very significant in this first episode was the editing style in regards to the intercutting of the two scenes of the Doctor and Jano and Jano explaining things. And then we have the scene of Nanina being like captured with the, the light gun and how it just splices and cuts back and forth, back and forth. I thought it was pretty good. The, the editing style was a lot quicker is what I'm saying between those shots. Yeah, I, I mean, I already mentioned I thought the pacing was faster and I think that probably adds to it. And another thing, whenever... Uh, Anybody, and if you're in any situation, if any time that someone's in charge uses language like perfection of our race, that's that's usually a big red flag. <laughs> that is a bad sign, yes. It's just a bit. Can we talk about how dumb the rest of the people were, though? Because they were just like kind of walking around and they're like, oh, yeah, well, we just don't go outside. Well, why not? We don't care. Like, <sighs> it's a society that doesn't care what the people in charge are doing, and that always worries me. <laughs> it's kind of a flip on the uh, Time Machine Eloy and Morlock relationship, in which instead of the, you know, the Morlocks would eat the Eloys, and the Eloys were this naive, blissful, ignorant people that were all just happy and go lucky. And this, we have people that are happy and go lucky, but they're actually aware that they are, you know, energy vampiring these people outside but i thought that was a interesting balance there i'm not sure if they were i don't think to them i don't think they were product that they get oh so like they would go they, like they'd go into like for a spa treatment or something like and also like i feel really good <laughs> yeah i mean the whole thing was they they sort of approached it in a very clinical way spoilers i really liked this story i so thought did I. I yeah. thought one thing would have been interesting was if there was more of a physical effect for the person they were draining the life force from you know the whole podling thing from dark crystal where it literally like makes them old and sucks their energy out because as yeah. I've shown it didn't really seem to have that much of an effect except for temporarily. When I was looking at the makeup they put on Chal, I thought that's what they were going with. Because you can see Chal, he's got so much like putty makeup smacked on his face. You thought that was going to be the twist? I'm only 23, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. And at the end, like they like resolve it. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, he's like, you know, a much younger man. But I guess not. No, but that's why I thought the makeup was like that. So I don't know. I'm sorry to the actor. If that's actually what he really looks like. And that isn't makeup. <laughs> but um, 
but I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was makeup. So something else, we get a major first for something we'll get quite used to in Doctor Who, which is, I think we have our first quarry in this story. <laughs> <laughs> and not our last. <laughs> so yeah i think that's the first one so i'm pretty excited about that we'll get more of those another thing i really liked about how this was structured was we find out as the audience what's going on before the tardis crew do and that ties into riley what you were saying about the intercutting and in, in the way the scenes were structured i'm not sure if that's a narrative device that we've seen too much before particularly not for something that's so critical to the plot. I think it was like previous serials where things are chopped up in more larger chunks. It's not such a rapid fire editing style um, between scenes, especially for something as important as the exposition of the whole serial. Yeah. And we tend to learn what things are going on along with the characters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We end it with Dodo wandering around the city and, you know, immediately you're thinking this kind of thing never ends well. She gets menaced by a savage and we get that very traditional sort of cliffhanger where we end with a companion being menaced and screaming. And I just thought that was kind of a nice little callback to that very first episode of the Daleks with oh, yeah. Barbara getting menaced oh, with yeah. the plunger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which does take us on to episode two. I know we've had our complaints and criticisms of Dodo, but I really like her in this opening scene in episode two. I was just about to say that. She seems like a real character. She doesn't like crumple into a heap. She's ready to like, you know, go, you know, start swinging. And I really like it. And she was smart enough to realize that something was unusual there without having everything laid out to her. You know, she could just tell that like right, something is fishy here. Exactly. Speaking of that, we do get that wonderful scene to your point of in episode one, where we've got this special discovery, we've got this little one little secret, blah, 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 blah. Just as they're about to tell the Doctor the secrets of the Elders, Stephen bursts in and ruins it. <laughs> Absolutely typical. <laughs> he didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. He did not. The other thing is, Don, I think it was you that mentioned that the, the general people are not in on the secrets of what happens. I think this was very deliberately shown in this episode where I think there are two characters called Avon and Flower, and they are very much not in on the secrets of what happens behind the scenes to get this energy source that helps them all. I don't think those two are in on much of anything. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's that as well. I think that does show that it's not something that the general populace is aware of. But it's interesting to know that they're willing to do that to their own people, not just the quote-unquote savages. Live by the vitality machine, die by the vitality machine, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Can anyone give me a, an understanding of exactly, because I would probably had a better grasp of it if it was not, you know, stills and fragments. It was actually just, you know, full proper video. What are the guards wearing on their heads? It appeared to be styrofoam strips. Yes, that is, or, or something. It was bizarre like from a distance i thought it was something a little more typical but then i could not grasp it i had no idea what the costume design with it and i think later on you see that i think the material for their shirts is basically like a football jersey material are you telling me you don't wear styrofoam strips on your head every day who even are you i'm orthodox only on fridays uh, <laughs> only on fridays a traditionalist I, I don't know just it was bizarre and i couldn't wrap my head around it my second favorite thing in this entire of this entire serial happens in this episode, and that's when we get 
a loud, shouting, moralistic doctor. That is always my favorite kind of doctor in Doctor Who. And I feel like Hartnell really gives a real good like shout uh, when he when every when he you know becomes fully aware of everything. I thought he was really going to stand his ground there, and he just kind of folds though. Yeah, I, I think so too. But I mean, I, I think he also realizes that he doesn't really have the the force capable of like fighting or defeating them at the moment. So he's just going to scold them instead. That's true. Speaking of that, you know, the the attitude of the elders and that the savages are not worthy of humanity by very consciously placing the doctor on the other side of that argument and having that dichotomy. It feels like the show has got its kind of progressive edge back. And that to me comes across as a very explicit anti-colonial, anti-racist statement. It very much is a, a total flip on the arc. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the reason why I really liked this episode. It felt like more in line of your traditional, like the the, the traditional uh, type of values you would expect from like your mid sixties, you know, sci-fi television. You know, this is exactly the type of thing you would see on a Star Trek episode from the original series. Oh, definitely. I also, I mean, I like they're using the technology to steal the life force. Just the overall plot was very cool. You you keep mentioning the idea of it being anti-colonial. But has anyone ever thought about maybe they're making a statement about capitalism as well? Because when you think about Avon and Flower, I could not think of two people that more represent like consumerism more than them. I think it if they wanted to go really anti-capitalistic, the savages would have been paid for having their life sucked from them, but only a very yeah. small amount. <laughs> True. I mean, maybe yeah. there's maybe there's a statement there on consumerism as opposed to capitalism. I think there's a a subtle mm. difference there. So like, you you could maybe yeah. make an yeah. argument on that. I also love how they justify certain things, like saying that they were exploiting people as if it were a good thing, and, and it was just it was very bizarre argument to hear. I think that really ties into you know again this is. The British Empire is crumbling at this time. We're granting independence to set, you know, two or three countries every single year, and it's just accelerating. And I think this is, to that point, the idea that the exploitation of races and peoples that have been seen rightly, well, no, have been seen wrongly, period, as lesser is not a good thing. I think the show is very deliberately making a stand. But they were savages was basically British foreign policy for a long time. <laughs> Claim this land for the British Empire. Can't I live here? Have you got a flag? flag. <laughs> <laughs> to to quote and Eddie Izzard. What I also really liked about this is so it's towards the end, but earlier I was talking about how I thought it was interesting that scientists were so important in the society, obviously since they have this machine, and how he actually didn't want to do the transfer with the doctor because he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. He's a fellow scientist. I can't do that. And it was just, it was interesting because it was like, you have these people who are like, oh, well, we're going to do it. And then you have the scientist who knows the machine is like, oh, this is a bad idea, guys. There, there was depth to that character because, you know, usually in a situation like this, he would, in a more like hokey kind of script, that character would be like, you know, wearing goggles and laughing maniacally and throwing a lot of switches instead of like being like, whoa, whoa, we never done like this, anything like this before. This could totally go belly up. This is a bad idea. So it was good to have that kind of you know, that depth of character for him. There was very little mustache twirling as far as yeah. the bad guys go. 
I got the distinct impression that they didn't really think they were the bad guys. They didn't. <laughs> also, I think yeah. one of the reasons that I really like the scientist character so much was because to me, he looked just like Kevin McDonald from Kids in the Hall. that's one way to look at it so speaking of that scene uh with the scientist in the lab again it's it's kind of a first but having previously watched what's going to come over the next season and a half ish those scenes in the lab look very much like what i have come to expect from the the innes lloyd jerry davis era it's there's a certain aesthetic to that that this really seems to be the genesis of. So we, I think you, you guys are going to see more of that aesthetic as we, as we go along. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think that just about takes us into episode three. This is where Stephen really starts to shine. The cave scene uh, with him is, I think, was just great. Oh, that was absolutely awesome. great. Um, what was so interesting to me about the scene is we've had so many like set piece cavern chase scenes and. And Doctor Who up to this point. But what I found so interesting about this one, this was, you know, not your typical kind of, you know, being chased by the bad guys kind of scene. It was a set up, stand up and fight situation, which I thought was really, really interesting was how in this scene, Chow is like completely just at a point, just resigns. He's just like ready to give up. And I thought that was a really, really good depth of character there because it just shows that for a population of people that have been oppressed by this system for God knows how long in this storyline, it would make so much sense for him to like give up so quickly and resign himself to it. Because that's just, you know, unfortunately, something that that just happens. Yeah, he just saw the guard and just started to shut down, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's almost like a, a form of conditioning. You know, you're so used to seeing brutality or or what have you that even just the sight of the perpetrator just causes that mental reaction. Yeah, I, and I know that there's been a lot of you know debunking of the Stanford prison exp- uh, prison experiment, but um, that experiment does document that the people that were being treated and ab- I mean, or that were abused, like they eventually started to actually instead of fight back, they just resigned themselves to it completely, and like would like do things like turn themselves in and stuff just really messed up stuff and i thought that was like indicative there and i thought that was really really interesting and then of course we have on a lighter note we have uh steven with his mocking tone we're going to change all that soldier boy <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of badass here he, i liked he really it just had a lot more character in this episode and what i liked is there was a moment where he could have opted for physical confrontation and he still held himself back for for some of it, so it was just interesting because usually Stephen was would just be you know do whatever needed to what he thought needed to get done, and they just gave him a little bit more varied reactions. Yeah, which he, was nice. he's usually a bit more of a chameleon. Yeah, he is. And with this, he really sort of he he stuck up for himself. He you know defended the native populace. It was it was really cool. I actually think it's a real shame that they decided to get rid of both Steven and Dodo at this time. I mean, they they finally got some character in this story. And, you know, this is Steven's last story. Spoilers, sorry. And, and Dodo's not far behind him. I think that's a real, real shame. I think the Dodo part is more of a spoiler because we, we saw Steven leave at the end of this one. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I think I mentioned last time yeah. around that their contracts were not being renewed. So... <laughs> 
Not too much of a spoiler. Spoiler Gosh, Anthony. You just watched. <laughs> I haven't seen Dodo Leave yet, Anthony. Some of us haven't watched all of Doctor Who. I'm not telling you when. <laughs> that oh. is true. I mean, we all know that she's a, she's not still on the show now, is she? <laughs> um, no. I was going to try and say something funny and, and just decided against it. No, no. It's just written by someone we refer to as a dodo. It's very different. Was that what you were kind of going for? No, but no, I'll take it. Because I'm here to help. Yeah, exactly. No, but I'll take it. So did Hartnell get, just decide to get more time off for this episode in particular? Because I, I, I'm trying to remember if he actually does have any um, screen time whatsoever in this episode. He does at the end. He shows up, he groans a lot, and that's, that's his contribution. So it's, it's like they didn't even send him on vacation this time. They just sidelined him. And did anyone else get really, really worried when we had that we thought we were about to have a Freaky Friday scenario? Oh, did you think they had completely switched? Or I mean, yes, I mean, or, or something like that, because it felt like it, they were going in that direction. I was like, oh, please don't do that. Though I have to admit, the actor who played Jano did a decent job of impersonating Hartnell. See, I thought that they were going with a very interesting... It, it could have been an interesting way of replacing Hartnell if they had wanted to go down that route. Basically, his vitality is so strong that he would just take over Jano completely. That would have been an interesting way of doing it. I like that. That is interesting. Because it, it almost happened anyway, because that's, to me, was just one of the best parts of this serial was when he was doing his William Hartnell impression. Which was really good. It was. Mm-hmm. I was believing. Yeah, I mean, it's he sold it. You could actually say, okay, this makes sense. Cool. The actor who played Jano, Frederick Jaeger, he did some phenomenal work at mirroring the inflections of Hartnell and, you know, the hmm and... I think he was clutching his lapels through it as well. I mean, he he did a great, great job there. All the lot of people, my dear boy, that kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. Now, that would be hard to keep up for an extended period of time. Oh, yeah, that would be so, tough. There's, there's that to consider. I think we're on to episode four. Almost. There's another little mirror to the Daleks at the end of episode three that I really liked, which is Stephen trying to hold the door open as it's closing. Remember all those glorious scenes with the Thals doing that? Mm. And yeah. here we have Stephen doing the same thing. One of the things I like is this, this intentionally or not, this has a lot of little callbacks to some of those first stories. And that's just something I really enjoy here. And that does bring us into episode four. I like to call the machine smashing episode where <laughs> amazingly the insurance uh, allowed them to do that without wearing goggles. It was a different if time. Been, <laughs> if this had still had individual episode titles, would episode four have been the machine smashes? I think it would be called just rage against the machine. Ooh, I like it. Which works on two levels. Ah, ah, ah. All right. Anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> savage. Ooh, we know who the savage was. It was Julie the whole time. <laughs> so we go back to the caves, and I think predominantly it's because the doctor is just not himself, so they don't go back to the TARDIS. I'm always kind of interested whenever they seem to have an opportunity to go to the TARDIS, and then they don't. So I try to figure out why they didn't do that. <laughs> this is another episode where I really, really, I know we've already talked about it, but I really enjoyed the use of the music. I've even written it in my notes again. 
It is absolutely strong throughout and it works and it holds for like every different type of like tone they're trying to hit with every single scene. It's it was thoroughly good. Plot wise, I mean it's very obvious that Jano is becoming more and more like the doctor after his absorption of some of the doctor's energy. And I think there's there's even a, a line about how Jano has absorbed dangerous ideas from the doctor. Was anyone else getting kind of a vibe of counterculture at that point? The idea that the effect that radical thinkers can have on orthodoxy and how effectively there's an enemy within and all of those kind of stereotypes and tropes. That's I did not pick up on that, but you're absolutely right. That works very, very, very well. And it, I think once again goes to the point of story in which, you know, maybe it's from my perspective of not experiencing the colonialism of England, but I, like I said, I just see a anti-capitalistic message here and you're, and with this was definitely, as you said, an anti-colonial message and you're right. It definitely has like the, they're getting into our minds, these damn commies, they're, they're, they're manipulating us. And then you, you compare that with the arc, which I think portrayed countercult not just colonialism in a positive light, but it, it play it portrayed counterculture in a very negative light, as I think the kind of doctor repeatedly losing in the previous few stories was meant to kind of show. This is kind of back on the kind of hippie, somewhat subversive theme that Doctor Who had been on in, in the beginning. I really like the fact that this is almost getting back on the original message. I think it's the, one of the things I enjoy so much about this episode outside of like, and there's the, the theme, the, the subtext, then there's the, the art. And there's been times recently where I've like reset for the, for the arc. I liked the art of it. I didn't really like the subtext of it, but I enjoyed the art of it, mm -hmm. but this is one where I enjoy both. Yeah. So are we going to talk about the big goodbye now? We certainly will. I was just seeing if I wanted to talk more about the destroying of the laboratory, but... <laughs> yes, go I, for it, Julie. Do it. I just... I loved it. I loved how they... There's a few bits here and there where they had the actual film, and I love how like they do an aside with Dodo and the Doctor, and they like stop destroying things, chat for a second, and then go back <laughs> to destroying it again. You gotta pace yourself. <laughs> I thought that was really funny as well. Uh, I love when things like that happen because I love I love the asides that happen uh, during things like that when there's a lot of chaos, but we take a step back and and see something else. So, and it's it's not just the Doctor and Dodo. Jano and and Charles are doing the same thing. They're talking about the future mm. and that they need a new leader while they're also smashing up the lab. It's it's just so brilliantly done. And see, in the, I think that also hits a theme uh, of the idea of just systems in general, regardless of the you know ideology of the system. Because here we have Chal and Jano together destroying the, the machine that you know that helped create and form the system that they were both a part of. I mean, it, it doesn't really get, it doesn't really get more obvious than that. Again, it goes it all back into that kind of subversive counterculture movement. I think it's just, it's brilliant. So moving on, we mentioned how Jano and Charles said they need a new leader. Well, guess who they pick? Dodo. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, would have been a better goodbye. <laughs> so it's our boy, Stephen. Everyone agrees. And Stephen is once again 
stuck on an alien planet with no way of escape. <laughs> it just seems to be his lot. Exactly life. how we found him. Yes, but he gets to be put in charge, so he doesn't have to listen to the doctor anymore. And also, the leaders on this planet typically have beards. Yes, yes, the beard comes back. <laughs> Head cannon accepted. Uh, <laughs> I wish we'd think... got Stephen back later and that he'd had a, a massive beard. Oh, the one thing that I, I really noticed was that this is really, I think, the first time the, re- the doctor really willingly left someone behind. Arguments can be made about Susan and Vicky, but I really don't think that he 100% wanted to leave them. But I feel like he was like, Stephen, this is your calling. This is what you need to do. And willingly left him. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're right, because with Stephen and the Doctor, it seemed more like a farewell between an, an employer and a entry-level employee going off to a, to a better job. <laughs> Then it felt like anything like deeply emotional between the two of them. But I mean, they've always been kind of like they've always been kind of punchy between each other. And there hadn't been like that underlying course of understanding that happened with Ian. So and the doctor doesn't the doctor doesn't care well. He doesn't get along well with macho macho guys, you know, shouting and being all brusque and everything. But. That's why I felt you're right, Julie. This felt more like a, you know what? This is a good move for you. You should you should go and you should apply for that job. Well, he was finally <laughs> starting to make some decisions and and act for himself and not just wait for the doctor, because that's not something that just happened in this serial. That's been kind of a defining trait. And Stephen didn't have very many, but he would sort of wait to be told what to do. Right. Well, there's a few moments where he didn't, but yeah. I think at times, though, I, I, I think I feel bad for Peter Purvis because I think at times he really acted his socks off. You look at Dalek's master plan or the massacre. He did such a good job, and yet his character was so underserved. And I hate to keep beating this drum, but I really feel like that was the, the fault of Tosh and Wiles. They wrote Dodo out, not Dodo, they wrote Vicky out because they didn't like her. Then they didn't know what to do with Katarina. They didn't know what to do with Dodo. It feels like they didn't really know what to do with Stephen. And now we're saying saying goodbye to Stephen because of the failings of the previous production team. I would just like to point out that that wasn't me. It was Wiles bashing. <laughs> yeah, it, it was me for a change. But I, I feel like they just didn't handle these characters well. And it's such a shame because Peter Purvis was so good in this role. Peter Purvis was really good at being whatever they needed him to be in any story to make it work. I mean, if they needed him to be a singing cowboy, he could be a singing cowboy. (laughs) That's very true. That is very, very true, my friend. He probably was, because Barbara and Ian always had like a, a specific feel to them. You know, Barbara made stuff happen. Ian, you know, had that fun game with the doctor of just like, you know, we're just going to like rub, you know, rub each other the wrong way, except in the best way. But yeah, Stephen just kind of seemed a little over the place in all of his stories. Well, we'll move on. And as the doctor said, we mustn't look back. All right, let's move on to our metrics. Start out with the camp count. Any nominations? I I thought Tor was a little over the top. 
the one the one that was just constantly angry i i referred to him during my watch as tour loser <laughs> <laughs> fantastic yeah so do we want to give it a one we'll give it a on one count, count just for him alone <laughs> and a new one added today quarry watch this gets a one for we have our first instance of a quarry yay can we call this the quarry query <laughs> no, because I can't say that. <laughs> I know. That's what I can't say. Quarry, quarry. I can do it. Hey, Actually, I can do it. Okay. Time to rate the story. Julie, you get to start. So I do agree with all of you that this was a much better story than the arc and what it was trying to accomplish because they were very similar and yet very different um, in the story that they were telling. Pace was really good. You know, nothing seemed too over the top. Nothing seemed too, you know, crazy out there. The music was good. Stephen leaving made sense story-wise. It just didn't seem to come up out of the blue, really. I will probably give it eight dead-end cave tunnels out of ten. <laughs> All right. Riley, you're next. I love this one. I absolutely love this one so much. It is wonderful. Like I said, and uh, everyone else agrees. The music, great. The acting, I think every. I think one of the things that's so enjoyable is everyone gets a really good moment where they stand out. You know, Stephen has his scene in the cave as well as his goodbye. Dodo has her fight in the laboratory as well as the smash in the laboratory. That sounds really bad. The smashing of the machine <laughs> in the laboratory, and the. Um, and the doctor is great, and the actor that plays Jono is great. The writing is wonderful. There's depth to all the characters, even the very small minor characters. I would say that it's just it's just and and I love the the theme and the message. It's wonderful. It's everything that I look forward to in a doctor who and, and there's moments of like, you know, terror. There's moments of like they're absolutely terrifying. It, it it's just Absolutely wonderful. I, I really, really enjoy this one so much. So I'm going to give it <clears throat> uh, eight and a half reacting vibrators out of ten. Oh man, you stole my count. <laughs> I'm next, and I feel equally positive about this. For me, this is um, really the show getting back on track. The show is positive. It's returned to its, its roots of being sla slightly anti-authority. And everything Julie and Riley, you guys have said about the performances, the writing, I, I can't help but, dis, uh, but completely agree with. So for me, this one is also an eight light guns out of ten. Don, over to you. Seems to be a pattern because you just basically stole what I was going to use as my, <laughs> my metric number. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll see if I can think of something as I go along. I think this is once again one of those really weird situations where we're all basically in agreement. And I was afraid <laughs> I was once again going to be on the outside defending this story. I'm glad that's not the case. I really enjoyed this. I love the concept. I like that you've got a little bit of a horror element in terms of how they're treating the quote unquote savages who actually just had a different type of civilization. I've been trying to avoid saying this, but I'm going to. This episode felt like Doctor Who again. Yes. It really was kind of a, a breath of fresh air. I don't really like seeing Stephen leave, but I like that he got a good send off. He's going into another life and he, he's going to use what he's learned. 
I think that's great. So I'm going to give this 8.5 not very savage savages out of 10. <laughs> Excellent. That gives a story average for this one of 8.25 out of 10, which means it is our highest rated story of this season and our highest rated story since the Romans. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> we love this. So question for you guys. Would you rather have this one back or the Myth Makers? This one. Mm, that's a tough one. That's a good question because part of me is like, I love the story so much, but the campiness of the Myth Makers, oh, dear Lord. To see the performances like actual with motion, mm, that's tough. Uh, I guess just because it's such a good story, I guess I'd go with this one. Julie? There's so much, uh, you know, again, movement, fighting. I probably would have understood that it was more of a comedy a little bit sooner if I had seen some movement and the expressions that people had for the myth makers. Whereas this one, even without having the visual cues, it was still a good story. Yeah. So I would probably visually need the myth makers a little bit more to enjoy that a little bit better. I think you've just summed up how I feel, Julie. I, I think that I would love either of them back. I mean, I'd love any story back, even, even Galaxy 4. That brings us to the end of our discussion on the Savages. We'll be back next time when we have even more Ian Stewart Black, because, hey, he did one great one. Let's bring him on for another. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And as a reminder, you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. Additionally, if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. It really helps us, uh, even if you're just rating the show and not actually writing anything, really helps us um, keep the show going. So please do that. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Tor Loser, was recorded on Wednesday the 29th of January, 2020. And always remember, sometimes it's the stories that you least expect that turn out to be really good.